Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of our Principles of Rhetoric podcast. My name is Houston. I'm here today with Dr. Donnie Sakai, Professor of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas. His research centers on dynamics of environmental public policy deliberation, environmental justice, and environmental justice uh, cultural history. Um, welcome, Donnie. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, our class read your article, One Size Fits None. Um, before we jump into the interview, would you like to add anything about your work and research background? No, I think that you did a really good job of sort of summarizing the things that I'm interested in and the things that I, I focus on. So it's pretty good. Okay, great. Well, let's just get right to it then. Um, we noticed that your article included an overview of personal air monitoring devices. We were interested to know what got you interested in that topic and do you hope that PAMs would help us protect the environment or contribute to environmental awareness? Yeah, so um, one of the reasons why uh, I became interested in thinking about um, personal air monitors was um, I was mostly interested in this idea of um, how we actually conduct um, air sampling currently and, and the ways in which we've sort of set up a, a surveillance network to um, take into account the, the different levels of exposure um, that people in communities um, have to uh, environmental toxins on a regular basis. And one of the things that sort of um, struck me as really interesting is um, at the time I, I was working in Detroit and I, I had this sort of sense um, from conversations um, and just also just things that I've been reading and, and, and things that I've been seeing that people really wanted a lot more access to um, environmental data that I think researchers and um, policymakers tend to take for granted. Um, some of this data is uh, siloed um, in sort of uh, government um, research uh, uh, repositories and, and some uh, is sort of siloed in um, different sort of networks that researchers um, sort of make use of um, on a daily basis, but they're not necessarily designed in such a way that um, residents or community members, people who are not um, researchers or people who are not um, government officials, um, would have access to. And um, so one of the things that I thought of is the ways in which um, the sort of technology that we have now um, has the ability to collect lots of data um, that gives us a picture of um, what people's environments look like on a day-to-day -day basis and to begin to think about how that data can be aggregated into a system that would allow um, researchers, policymakers, but most importantly, um, community residents um, um, that would provide them access to that data um, on an equal footing so that they can be able to participate in conversations over policy or may even begin to, to lead or, or, or um, start or initiate um, conversations around environmental policy. And so I, I had this belief or this feeling 
that um, personal air monitoring devices, um, if they can function much in the same way as um, the sort of regular air monitoring devices that we have, that essentially they hold the sort of key um, towards increasing participation in um, public deliberation around environmental issues. Um, so that's kind of where my interests um, began to peak around them. Um, I was really fortunate in the sense that I had a group of colleagues um, who are part of a research team um, who are also interested in, in thinking through this particular idea. And naturally it sort of coalesced um, into this like idea like, oh, we can actually build something and test it and, and, and sort of use this more or less as a proof of concept um, that will essentially uh, allow us to do a larger project in the future with a more refined device. Yeah, I think you're spot on because I know when those Apple Watches first came out, first of all, I was one of the few people fortunate enough to be able to even have one, which talks about their limited access. But then it had all these apps on it, and I had no idea what half of them meant. And looking back on it now, there's probably a lot of useful information, but I don't think they really try to help people like me understand and use that information. So and that kind of leads me to my second question. So. Um, in your article, you kind of talk about um, two benefits to um, increasing this access and this participation. And you talk about how it appeals to affordability and potential profits, but you also talk about how it appeals to environmental justice and participants' needs. So our question is, are these two mutually supportive? And can companies promote social justice and make better Apple Watches? I think the answer is, is, is yes. Um, I think currently um, when we look at a lot of um, wearables, when we look at the wearable market, um, the issue that seems to stand out to me is that um, there are basically a subset of consumers um, that are within a lot of developers' minds. Um, and these consumers oftentimes are, are well-to-do people who have a lot of disposable income who can um, purchase these devices. And in many instances, um, I would say most of the people who are purchasing these devices are not necessarily um, using them to the full um, capacity of their design, right? Maybe there's a couple features that they find super interesting, but there are all these other features that they're not necessarily making use of. Um, but again, they're sort of taking that design for granted. It's, it's really just about having access to the device and um, the level of like sort of, um, popularity or, or, or um, adoration that you get from your friends or your families for, for actually being able to, to have these things or being able to wear them. Um, I think that things begin to shift um, when developers start thinking about inclusivity and how other people um, can have access to these devices or should have access to them and how um, when we start thinking about issues of inclusivity, it changes aspects of design. Um, and if we start sort of thinking about these people through design as being part of a particular consumer base, then naturally one of the questions um, that emerges in the process of design is, how can we make this thing more affordable, right? Um, if you see them initially as consumers from the, the beginning, then you're trying to figure out ways in order um, to make them a part of that particular product. 
I would say the only reason why we're not thinking about affordability right now, especially knowing that these um, these wearables, particularly these these fitness trackers, have the potential um, to give people information about their environments, is that we don't necessarily see um, poor people of color or working class people, uh, particularly in urban cities or in rural environments, um, as being um, a part of um, the the sort of consumer base that these products are designed around. Um, when you look at, um, we'll just use Apple Watch because you use that as an example. I haven't seen an Apple Watch um, ad in, in quite some time. Um, but when you look at these ads, um, you see um, specific kinds of people um, that are using these products or using that product in particular. But at no point in time do you think like, oh, that's a like single mother who's working like two jobs and like using like public transportation, right? Um, that's just not the type of consumer that's in your mind, and it's also not the type of consumer that's in Apple's mind. And that is kind of antithetical because you also mentioned in your article how the people most who could most benefit from these devices are the ones who aren't marketed for. So it's kind of a shame. But one of the other um, issues that your article talks about is we've already mentioned a little bit is environmental justice as a design issue, and Lashonda's story in particular shows how non-participatory design can have negative consequences. So um, our question is, if the government shouldn't be um, mandating participatory design, who should be responsible for bringing this principle of environmental justice into the design process? I think that there are ways in which um, we all um, can participate in um, design, particularly in terms of thinking about how environmental justice um, sort of can guide our thinking. Um, it could be specifically guiding our thinking in terms of making technology, but it could also guide our particular thinking in terms of writing environmental policy. So in particular, one um, specific policy tool that we might consider um, is the ways in which um, a state government, for instance, um, through its own executive branch, might um, make environmental justice or a set of environmental justice metrics um, a part of its policy making approach or the ways in which it decides to um, monitor certain cities or monitor certain industries with respect to um, how they um, develop or how they interact with the community, right? So there's a way in which um, state governments can do that and we actually do have precedent for that in the sense that um, uh, when Bill Clinton was in office, one of the things that he did was he signed an executive order which essentially um, mandated environmental justice within um, the executive branch. Granted, it only covers um, agencies within the executive branch. So um, for instance, uh, the U.S. Um, Department of Environmental Protection, or the Agency of Environmental Protection Agency, I'm sorry, um, actually has an environmental justice unit. Um, and most of the work that they've been doing has focused on developing um, tools for researchers, policymakers, and citizens that allow them to understand um, the sort of environmental justice score within their own um, zip code. So basically, it's a, there's a tool called EJ Screen that gives you an idea of what specifically um, is happening within your particular zip code with respect to polluters and, and other um, sort of mitigating um, circumstances 
that um, sort of affect um, sort of health outcomes for a particular. Uh, but other agencies like have some type of EJ mandate fall under executive order. I know in Michigan, um, before um, this is uh, three governors ago, Jennifer Granholm, as she was leaving. Um, she had what was essentially an environmental justice directive, which is just a step below um, an executive order. It doesn't have as much teeth, um, so it's really more of a suggestion. And um, when Rick Snyder's, um, when he took over um, as governor of Michigan, he essentially sort of kicked that directive to the side. So we didn't necessarily make it a priority. But there are ways in which the government can sort of um, spearhead an effort to um, create environmental justice um, policies that affect design anywhere from construction to the writing of policy. Right. So the government doesn't have to necessarily set out a mandate, but there are plenty of ways that it can incentivize people to move in the right direction. Yeah. Um, that actually kind of leads to our next question, though, because we're talking about um, different levels of government and the ways that they can promote um, principles of uh, participatory design and environmental justice. And we had one question in particular about um, local communities because um, in the discussion about LaShonda's community, it seems like the principles of particip participatory design hold a lot of promise. Um, so we're just interested to know and in how you think that, do you think a shift in data collection and responsibility will better results for communities like LaShonda's? It's hard to say. Um, I'm operating off of this idea that there are ways in which we can um, collect data because right now we have a lot of questions that are data-driven and usually the response um, to these questions are well, we don't have data, right? Um, so, for instance, um, if you live in um, a, an environment um, where all of your neighbors have cancer and you're pretty sure that it's the um, oil refinery that your um, sited near or that your community near is, is what is the result of that cancer, one of the things that you're more likely to do is you're more likely to take that oil refinery um, to court and say like, you're responsible for our cancer. Now, what that refinery is gonna say is, well, uh, this person over here has leukemia, this person over here has some sort of strange growth. They're all different cancers, they're all different disorders. How can you prove that what's happening on this site actually is the result of what's happening in your body? Right. So what they're acting on is the fact that there's not enough data that's sampling within that area that can give us an idea of what potential causal links um, exist. So my argument here is, well, we have the capacity now, uh, we have the imagination um, to actually make it so that we can collect that data and store it over a period of time. And we can also sort of show, like, this is what people's environment looks like when they live at home. This is what people's environment looks like um, when they're at work. So it gives us an opportunity to sort of see how the environment changes for them and how, like, them in relation to all of these other um, individual people with their various data points, 
um, makes it so that there is a stronger argument um, for causality. Now the problem, and this is getting back to um, the heart of your question, we can have a ton of data that tells us all sorts of things about people's environment. But what we don't necessarily have and we can't necessarily predict is the will to act on that data, right? So that's like the next step. Um, so when we talk about data improving um, people's lives, much in um, the, the case with Lashonda, it's this idea that we could have this data, but the, the sort of next um, half of that is we need like sort of people to sort of move with that data to sort of act on it. Um, Lashunda, having more information about Lashunda's community and environment stored in a, um, a, a sort of data repository isn't gonna do anything um, for Lashunda until people sort of act on it, right? So there are all sorts of things that need to be thought of in relation to the technology that can change our environments. This is just like one tiny step. Is there anything that people like you and I can do to just help move everything forward towards um, a more participatory design or do we just have to kind of wait for things to get better? So I think that one of the things that I, I really kind of love about the current moment that we're in is that everybody's thinking about design thinking, right? Everybody is in this moment where, and I mean, you're in the um, information design class and, yes. and, and you've been able to get like a, a kind of taste about this. And it's the ways in which every single thing we interact with um, has been designed, or at least that there's some element of design thinking that went into it. And I think with this question of environmental justice, it's just like another layer of design thinking, right? To sort of say, this is an artifact that's been designed. How might we augment, not necessarily improve, right? But I wanna say augment, how might we augment this particular design in relation to the principles of environmental justice or or how do the principles of environmental justice get us to rethink um, this one particular object and so for me that's the issue of personal air monitoring devices right these were not necessarily designed um, for this purpose they were designed to be fun but with a little bit of design thinking in relation to um, principles of environmental justice now like a whole different world of, of use emerges from uh, personal air monitor, not personal air monitors, but from wearables. Um, so in particular, I think that one of the things that we can do is to sort of think about the ways in which a lot of the artifacts um, that we use or rely upon on a day-to-day um, -day basis might sort of um, force us to change our relationships with them or rethink them altogether or even advocate for better designs of them when thinking about environmental justice. Um, one of the uh, artifacts or a set of artifacts that I often sort of bring up in, in classes um, that gets students to think, particularly with respect to environmental justice, is to think about cell phones and, and computer technologies, right? Um, in order for us to make use of a lot of these computer technologies, we need to have access to a lot of rare earth metals. In 
most of the world, um, lots of these rare earth metals that go into making like, you know, like our MacBooks or whatnot are actually coming from incredibly impoverished um, countries, right? Um, Sub-Saharan Africa, where um, people are actually like sort of mining these materials in dangerous conditions and being compensated um, very, very little for their labor. And, and at the same time, they're being exposed to environmental hazards in the process. Um, so in a, in a certain way, like these uh, communities are essentially um, technological sacrifice zones so that we can continue our day-to-day um, activities like Zooming for this particular interview, right? right. So I think on a certain level, um, if most people knew about the processes or the design processes behind the computer um, technologies that they use and even the communication technologies that they use, um, how might that information or knowledge um, change uh, consumption practices? It doesn't necessarily need to be a big change because um, I think oftentimes, and I think even in this moment that we're in now, people want to see like big structural change. And I would like to see big structural change but I also know that for a variety of reasons, that's not possible. So I've often been um, an advocate of incrementalism. I think that we can sort of like move quickly or, or slowly with um, technological design, but those designs are only gonna work if we give people enough time to sort of think through their paradigms and, and change the ways in which they think about the world and relate to the world and relate to their environment. So I think slow um, progression is better than quick progression in the end. Right. I can just say one thing learning from your class is that no design is by accident. Like you say, like there's a lot of thought put into all of these and just thinking about that is, you know, first step. And then to tie that into the principles of rhetoric class, like each design, there's a rhetorical appeal contained within there and just thinking about those and how we use them. A lot of people want to jump to the finish line, but I, we got to take each step one at a time, right? Um, we wanted to ask you, considering everything that's going on with the coronavirus, um, how do you think participants participatory design could improve these efforts and improve our ability to respond to disasters like uh, the coronavirus epidemic? One of the things that's been really interesting about the current moment um, are the kinds of conversations that are happening um, across the political spectrum over uh, the social safety net. Maybe um, we can start to have a conversation or start to think about um, how like participating in democracy, at least through voting or um, participating um, in, in, in democracy in other ways, like um, showing up at city council meetings or, or, or show, showing up at committee meetings, if you have access to it, um, can maybe to some extent have um, a, an impact on the overall process. So for me, like, I, I, I don't know, I've, I've been trying to grapple with this in my mind for quite some time to sort of think about like people's responses right now to this particular problem and not really seeing how they're sort of, or not really understanding how their level of participation like sort of allowed for this to happen or at right. least contributed to this happening. The system is, is designed in such a way that um, people really do not understand their role or how their voting has like contributed to this. 
Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I've only been to a city council meeting once, but I mean, the people that go there, I can tell that it's the same people. You know what I mean? Well, I'd also point out that like a lot of these, like, I mean, in many um, places, uh, it's not easy to participate, right? So you have to think about when um, these meetings are held, where they're held. Um, if you are, uh, you know, uh, a, a single, like a single mother whose only access to transportation is public transportation and you work two jobs, um, chances are you're probably not going to go to a five o'clock um, or six o'clock city council meeting on a Thursday, you know? I understand. Yeah. And also, yeah, like you said, getting there. And if you live in a rural community, you might not even have a place like that. Yeah. So I think that that's been one of the more interesting parts about like this particular economic response is that most of my friends who live, um, I mean, I, I went to high school in Clarksville, Tennessee. So a lot of my friends are in Tennessee and they, and they live in like more rural parts of Tennessee. Um, I, I think that like, when a lot of these policies or a lot of these like sort of decisions to sort of cut funding were being made, um, I think people spent a lot of time, it was easy to sort of think about how, you know, like welfare queens in um, inner cities were abusing welfare, um, but no one actually really thought about how um, these particular policies would also impact rural communities as well. And so, like, in, in, in many ways, like, kind of like a, a disconnect when it comes to rural communities. Um, they don't necessarily always get the same sort of consideration that urban communities do. Right. And so the question is, how can we sort of redesign or augment um, the design of the system so that we get different types of participation and different levels of engagement? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Sakai, I have one more question for you and then I'll let you go. Um, we were just curious to know about um, how principles of participatory design have influenced your teaching style and if there's anything else you want to leave with us, please. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I, I teach exclusively design classes. Um, I think, in short, I think that design has influenced um, my teaching in the sense that it has allowed me to become more of an considerate, compassionate, and empathetic person, right? To sort of think about how I can um, build learning experiences that are, are, are more inclusive, um, to the types of experiences um, students have outside the classroom um, and thinking about how those experiences outside the classroom um, impact their ability to learn inside the classroom as well. See, that was a great answer. Well, thank you so much, by the way, for doing this interview. Um, thank you for the work that you do and taking the time for our questions and our podcast. Is there any um, final shout out you'd like to give to the fans? Um, I, I miss being in the adjacent classroom and having your professor um, like stare at me creepily through the window. He does that sometimes. Yeah. It's one of his charms. You'll just have to wait till next semester to get those 
beautiful Mark Stairs. Have a wonderful day, everyone, and God bless America.